0: Welcome back to Seeking Truth, presented by the Gospel Truth Society, where we seek and defend biblical truth in an age of uncertainty for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hurst, and we're going to be looking at some false gospels today. A couple weeks ago, we covered exactly what a false gospel is, and I wanted to recap a quick definition of that before we dive in. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it first, as we set a foundation for understanding false gospels. In two sentences, a false gospel is 1. Any gospel that twists or distorts the biblical gospel to do anything other than glorify God and center upon Jesus Christ. And 2. It takes biblical truth out of context, twists or abandons it altogether so that it can push an agenda or viewpoint opposite of biblical truth. Last episode, Julian took us through the prosperity gospel and the social justice gospel, and today, we're going to be looking at two more very popular false gospels that have worked their way into the church and are wreaking havoc. The first is progressive Christianity, and the second is moralistic, therapeutic deism. MTD is much like progressive Christianity, but to a greater extreme, and I would even consider it more dangerous and unloving to those who listen to it. These two false gospels seem to fly under the radar pretty often and can even present themselves in ways that sound like true Christianity. This is why they often go unnoticed until the damage that they have done in a church is of greater proportions. So, to guard ourselves against these, let's dive right into progressive Christianity. What does this false gospel teach? Well, first, it teaches that God can have many different forms, that he's not just one creator that goes by one name. Instead, this gospel proposes the idea that God can go by many names and can also be defined primarily by what you feel. It believes that God only cares about the way you live and does not care about what name you call him by. This gospel believes that God, much like society, progresses, completely disagreeing with the idea that God is unchanging, which we see all throughout scripture. We see it in Hebrews thirteen eight, Malachi 3, 6 Psalms 120, verses 25 through 27, just to name a few. This false gospel proposes the idea that God is not unchanging, but changes as we do, as our feelings and ideas of wrong and right change. This means that along with God changing, so must his beliefs on what is wrong and what is right. Progressive Christianity teaches that what he has said about sin has changed, which leads to our second point in it. This gospel abandons the belief that scripture is eternal, authoritative, and without error. It believes that scripture may not be right on all things and that the word of God can be debated. Progressive Christianity thinks that scripture, much like their beliefs on God, should change along with society. That as we discover more and more about ourselves, we should manipulate or abandon God's word to fit ideals and sin into the Christian lifestyle in a comfortable way. This is most commonly done through what is called deconstruction, which at the core is just questioning scripture because we feel contrary to it. Because we feel convicted and uncomfortable by it, we are now going to question it. Deconstruction denies that there is any one way to interpret a verse of scripture, thus saying we can never truly know what God meant by it. It is saying there is no absolute truth. It is a cop-out way of disagreeing with Scripture so that we are not confronted by conviction or our own sin. And not only is it a cop-out, but it's also a logical fallacy. To deny the absolute truth exists is to state an absolute. Progressive Christianity tries to define and interpret Scripture by what we feel rather than influence what we feel and mold our lives to what God's Word says. It denies biblical authority And feelings take precedent over Scripture. So that's progressive Christianity in a nutshell. What refutes this gospel? What actually goes against it? Well, first and foremost, we have to address the fact that there is only one God who goes by one name. He is most definitely and most certainly not the same God as other religions. He is not attained in any other way than Jesus Christ, as the Scriptures outline. We see this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 8, 5-6 when it says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There is one God even though there are idols here that we may ascribe and elevate to the position of god in our lives there is only one true god and only one true lord and that lord is jesus christ he has authority over us who are his creation and we bend to what he says and what he defines as truth not what we feel or say is truth that's what first corinthians means when it says There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist for God and through Jesus Christ, not for ourselves, not so that we can define God, but so that God can define us. He has ownership over us as his creation. Unlike this gospel claims, this false gospel, God is unchanging and unbending to our feelings or claims and conceptions about truth. Second, we have to address the nature of God's Word since progressive Christianity seeks to deconstruct it. God's Word flows from His nature and takes on His characteristics, and specific to this circumstance, it takes on His unchanging nature. Isaiah 40, verse 8 tells us, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's word is eternal, much like himself, and is breathed out by him. It is his way of communicating his nature and truth to us. If God is complete truth and cannot lie, if he is perfect, then his word that he identifies with must also share those same characteristics. And so, if we are under the authority of God, made for him, through Christ, then we are also under the authority of his word. We see this in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness. God's word is profitable for every part of our life. It's profitable for teaching, which is guiding us and showing us new things about life. It's profitable for reproof looking back over our life, actions, words, and reflecting on whether they line up with His Word. For correction, for correcting whatever in our lives goes against God, and those things that go against Him are outlined in His Word. And finally, it's profitable for training in righteousness. It is by God, His teaching, the Holy Spirit's conviction, and His Word, that trains and conforms his people into the image of Christ. God's word does not change with the times, as God himself does not change his mind. He is too wise and too perfect to err in writing his word and breathing it out. And therefore, he does not need a second chance. He does not need to change what he said. He doesn't need to go back and proofread it. Instead, his word was perfectly written the first time through. The convictions do not change. Sins do not become acceptable, and feelings do not become the new truth. Scripture was unchanging and perfectly true in the past, is unchanging and perfectly true in the present, and will be unchanging and perfectly true for all of the future. And so, in a very large nutshell, that is progressive Christianity, what it teaches, and what refutes it. So now that we've started with progressive Christianity, we can move on to moralistic therapeutic deism, which, if you remember, I said is a greater extent of progressive Christianity. So moralistic therapeutic deism was first coined in a study done by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton on American teenagers. This study was mainly to gauge what their religious and spiritual lives looked like in regards to what we believe to be scripturally true. And what they found is that what teenagers are believing does not line up with biblical Christianity. Instead, it's something different altogether. It's a false gospel. MTD is focused more on God as a combination of a butler and a therapist rather than an eternal savior. It revolves around the idea that to live a good and happy life, you just need to be a good person, have good morals, and do nice things. This is God's call for you, his goal for the universe. God exists to make you feel good about yourself, and Jesus died so that you can have a happy life. In short, MTD is all about feeling good and being nice, and at some points, it even looks and sounds Christian, and that's the danger of it. This has not crept in because churches are preaching the main five tenets of MTD, but instead has seeped into Christianity because of the culture around us. They may not be preaching this word for word, but our society is pushing these ideas in subtly, and without a deeper biblical understanding of the gospel, people can be taken wayward by these beliefs because it doesn't seem like a bad thing on the surface. But let's take a deeper look at their five core tenets, and you'll start to see why this is a false gospel. Those who subscribe to this viewpoint believe five major things, and we'll go over each of these in detail in just a moment. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Starting with number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, kind of good. God does in fact exist, and he has in fact created the world. Genesis 1 tells us so. He orders it and watches over it. However, even here we see the temptation to reduce him to a small set of responsibilities. But a quick glance at Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.17 shows us that God actively holds all things together in existence and governs us completely as we see in James 4.15. He doesn't just watch over human life, but interacts with the world clearly seen in Christ, who descended and became man. And we could go on and on about how God interacts and governs the world itself, but for the sake of time, we'll move on from this one since it's the least off base. So, to fix it, the one true God created, ordered, and upholds the world, governing human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Is taught in the Bible and by most world religions. This belief is often rooted in the golden rule from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7:12, where Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. When you ask a majority of people what they live their life by, they'll tell you the golden rule. This is an important statement, but even more important than the statement itself, we must live for the one who said it. This is where we begin to see this message going off track. God just wants us to be good people, nice people, people who are fair to one another. And while these are aspects of the Christian life, they are things that we do that flow from what God truly wants for us which is to glorify him. This is made clear in 1 Corinthians 10:31, when Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then we see it again in 1 Corinthians 6:20, which tells us we were bought with a price, the price of Jesus Christ on a cross. And because of that, we are to glorify God in our body. So God's chief desire for our life is to glorify and honor him with our life which ultimately affects us with goodness, niceness, and fairness. But those small aspects are not the chief desire of God. He wants his name glorified above all else. And in glorifying his name, our lives outpour those three aspects. But without the anchor in the root of Jesus Christ and the glory of God, even those three aspects will still be flawed if they are what we strive for and not the glory of God. The final passage I want to point to in this is Revelation 4.11, where it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy to receive honor and glory, and this is his will for which we were created. God wants us to be holy and set apart to him. First Peter 1.16 and Leviticus 11.44 tells us that. God is concerned with us glorifying Him by what He says, not by what we define as good, fair, and nice. And this is what sets us apart from the other world religions. Even in this statement, you cannot lump Christianity into the same category here, because this chief goal is incorrect. This chief goal of many other world religions to live good, to do nice things, that that will earn you a seat in whatever heaven that they ascribe to their religion is completely off base with Christianity. God does not just want us to do good. Our works will not earn us anything in heaven. But instead, God's chief desire for us is for us to glorify him and him alone through Jesus Christ. What people believe that their central goal of life is flows out of what they believe that God's chief want is. And so this leads into point number three, what they believe the central goal of life to be. It's this, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This is where things really go off course. So moralistic therapeutic deism believes that your entire life goal is to just be happy and to feel good about yourself. That you should be happy in who you are and that you should be accepted just as you are. The main goal of life is not to be happy. It is to know and glorify the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. And just to let you know, happiness is fleeting. Being happy is a very temporary thing. And a clear distinction has to be made here between joy and happiness, two things that people often lump into the same category. Happiness is a fleeting rush of enjoyment in something, it's temporary. Joy, however, is lasting. It goes far deeper than just a rush of emotions. It may cause rushes of emotions, but it goes much deeper than that. It's this great feeling of happiness on steroids that is rooted in something that does not go away. When you have joy, it's not just temporary happiness. It's something that perseveres and even lasts through suffering. Hard things come, and frankly, setting your sights on happiness as the chief goal is setting your sights on something impossible because happiness cannot fulfill that expectation. It's like trying to go deep sea diving in a kiddie pool. Happiness is shallow, and when you have hard times, you're going to run out very quickly. Your reservoir is going to run empty far before you ever think that it will. Happiness cannot sustain you for life. And then as far as feeling good about yourself goes, that should not be our chief goal because in all reality, we need to come face to face with our sin and our spiritual deadness. Ever since the fall, man has been completely separated from the love of God and completely under the wrath of God. This is what we have inherited. We are wicked at our core. And so we should not feel wholly good about ourselves. Look how Ephesians 2 Verses 2-3 through describes those apart from Christ. It says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, talking about Satan, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind without Jesus Christ, I am a child of wrath, following Satan himself. Now, let me set this straight. This isn't talking about my personality, my little quirks, my creativity, the way I speak or look. But no, this is talking about my heart condition, something deeper than everything superficial. It's talking about who we are at our core. And yes, who we are at our core stems out into our personality, into our quirks, and can make even those things wicked. But say you're an artist and you like to draw. I'm not saying that that part of you is bad, but I am saying that at your core, that wickedness will seep into those things. For the sake of our hearts, we should not feel good about ourselves. And so this is not the central goal of life. This is not a correct goal. In fact, it is a goal that you will never be able to attain, and it will kill you in the process of trying to get it. And so that brings on the question, the very natural question, what is the central goal of life? And I'm glad that it brings on that question, because the central goal of life is to know Jesus Christ to enjoy Him, and to glorify and honor God in everything that you do. God wants your chief goal to be so much more than happiness and fleeting feelings of goodness. He wants joy for you, and glorifying Him is the one thing that can fulfill your heart. All of us have an eternity-sized hole in our heart as we see in Ecclesiastes, and we need it to be filled. Over 150 times joy is mentioned in Scripture, and often it is mentioned as being a gift from God while happiness isn't. Joy is something far greater. It's something that we're all seeking. God, greater than we ever could, knows exactly what can fill that hole. He knows exactly what can fill that void and bring you the highest degree of satisfaction and joy, and it's glorifying Him. And so joy is something far greater. It's a gift from God. We see in Psalm sixteen, eleven, the psalmist cries out and prays it, God, giving him joy when he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Then again in Romans 15, verses 13, where Paul hopes for his brothers and sisters in Christ to be filled with joy. All of these instances... We see Christians reaching for something deeper than happiness. They reach for joy. And that joy only comes through glorifying one person, Jesus Christ. Listen, we so heavily refute this because you cannot build your life on happiness or glorifying yourself. I really don't want that for anybody. Because we need something so much deeper. Something that can take root in the darkest moments of your life. Glorifying and marveling at Jesus Christ is that root. Seeking him with all you have because he is worthy. That's our chief goal. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. It says, what is the chief end of man? Well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And lastly, I would be doing everybody a disservice if I didn't also point to Christian hedonism here, which states, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Us being satisfied in God leads to his glory, which in turn leads to our satisfaction and joy. That's point number three, the central goal of life. Moralistic therapeutic deism gets even more off base, especially when it goes to point number four. It says that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. This is stating that we do not need God all the time. John fifteen five tells us so plainly that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We need the God who upholds the universe to uphold us in the good and the bad times alike. This statement, in short, reduces God to a magic genie. I put him in a box until he's needed, and that's all the say that he gets in my life. I only need God to do what I need him to do. It's not about his agenda. It's not about his plan. He doesn't need to be involved in it at all. He becomes an add-on to other things. Maybe he is or isn't as important as high school baseball. Until I need to hit a home run, then he becomes everything. This is not how God works at all. Because God loves you, because God wants you to experience the fullness of joy in glorifying him, he is concerned with every aspect of your life. He's not interested in just being some magic genie who bows to your will. Instead, he wants to govern all of our lives. He wants it all. He wants to be personally involved in all aspects of your life. Let's look to Matthew six twenty-five through 34 In this passage, Christ is telling the people not to be anxious about what tomorrow brings because God's in control. He says that God clothes the lilies of the field who are here today and thrown into the oven tomorrow, how he feeds the birds of the air when they do nothing, and all of this leads to Jesus telling us that God knows all of our needs, and if we seek God, He will take care of our true needs, what He knows we need. And if that wasn't enough, let's look at one of my favorite passages throughout all of Scripture, Matthew 10:29 through 31 It says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Two sparrows off in the forest. That seems to be the most insignificant thing in the world. But even those sparrows do not die apart from God working it. And you are of much more value than the sparrows. God has numbered the hairs of your head and is involved in everything. He wants to be personally Involved in your life because he cares. It's not because he wants to be controlling. It's because he wants the best and the most for you. And we have to come to terms with the fact that we don't know what is best for us. My associate pastor one time was talking about God working his will in our lives. And he described it like this We look at this tapestry that God is weaving, but we look at it from the backside, on this side of eternity. And to us, it looks like a jumbled mess of string. But when we get to the other side of eternity, we see the other side of the tapestry, the side where God works and the side that God sees. And it's beautiful. It's this stunning portrait that God has been weaving throughout all of time and has always been what's best for us. We just couldn't see it. So that's how God works in our life. But how should we treat God's working in our life? As an add-on? No. God, in true Christianity, is everything to us. Our entire lives are to be consumed with his glory. Think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God could have delivered them from the furnace by teleportation or, or something crazy like that. I don't even know. But instead... He got down and got involved in the furnace himself through the pre-incarnate Christ. And their entire lives were offered to him because he's God. They were completely ready to die for them. He was everything to them and should be everything to us. There is not a different level of Christianity for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego than there is for us today. In fact, if you're in college Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were younger than you. They were teenagers in a completely foreign land where nobody would have cared if they abandoned God and lived it up in sin. But God was worth so much more. He was worth their lives. And we're called to the same level of Christianity. God is not a God to be kept at arm's length. But instead, he's a God who wants to be your entire life one who personally identifies with Christians as father and draws near to his children. On to the final point, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. This statement is the most controversial one and places the largest weight on our shoulders. This is saying that if you live a good life, if you do enough good things, then God will accept you for those works that's completely off base from what makes christianity distinct from so many other religions if that were true in the gospel of christ then we would be just like every other religion so let's start there this statement that good people go to heaven when they die places an unattainable standard and burden on everybody who has ever lived the standard you ask live a good enough life to please a perfect and holy God who perfectly loves good, hates evil, and will punish all iniquity, all evil. Not a single deed of evil will escape God's punishment. Do you see the burden that places on us? I look at that and I say, wow. So you're telling me I have to live in a way that pleases a perfect and holy God. What about yesterday? I can't go back and undo that. And I know I can't live perfectly from here on out. And we can't. Especially not when we take into account all the laws that have been set in place. Then we look to what scripture says and all throughout scripture we see that the standard for heaven is perfection. Perfection. That to be in God's presence, we must be covered in in complete and perfect righteousness. That's what Adam and Eve had before the fall. Perfect righteousness and then one sin. One drop of iniquity and all of mankind has been plagued. And really quick, sin is not just a mistake, but sin is a deliberate act of rebellion against God. We have to stop seeing sin as a little mistake, a little slip-up. Sin is something that our core nature chooses. It is a complete act of rebellion against God, not just a mistake. If it was just a mistake, an eternal hell would not be justified. And because of that, we cannot measure up to the standard of heaven. And this statement, this false gospel, puts that burden on on us, To take it a step farther, Scripture goes ahead and tells us that nobody can meet this. Psalms 14 verse 3 says that there is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us this again, this time adding that nobody is righteous. And then again, Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God here is heaven. None of us are good the all-knowing, heart-searching, almighty God tells us that nobody is righteous. Nobody is good. So you're left at the end of the day with this despairing hopelessness because you cannot live in a way that warrants heaven. But I'm going to say something here that might surprise you. This statement, even after placing that burden on us, is completely correct. Good people when they die, do go to heaven. Or maybe I should say it like this. A good person, when they die, does go to heaven. And I change it to person because that has only happened once. And that person is Jesus Christ. He was the only one who lived a perfectly obedient life to God, died, was resurrected, and then ascended to be seated at the right hand of God in heaven. First Peter two twenty two tells us this He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ lived in perfect obedience, and this is where the true gospel reveals itself as far more beautiful and fulfilling than any other gospel we could ever come up with. Remember that burden? That impossible task of perfection? Christ offers the covering of his perfect life so that we might be reconciled to God and stand in his glory. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is not to glorify us or puff us up with pride, but instead shows the great love that God has and glorifies him all the more because of it, Knowing that we can never obtain heaven, Christ offered himself up in death to cover us with his righteousness. We see again in 1 Peter 2 verse 24 that Christ bore our sins on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We cannot save ourselves by our works. Nothing we do is good a good life will not earn you heaven because it's all tainted with a sin nature. It cannot earn you anything other than eternal wrath and judgment because it's tainted. And that's heavy, but I'm so glad that the gospel, the true gospel, doesn't leave us with that burden. Instead, Christ offers himself freely for us so that he may be glorified and so that we may be redeemed to the Father and experience true, satisfying joy in him, eternal joy. The true gospel all hinges upon the finished work of Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, not us being good people. This gospel, this false gospel, when truly thought about and examined in light of Scripture, places unattainable standards on people that will leave them hopeless and despairing. It weighs them down with the impossible burden of living in a way that pleases a God who demands perfect righteousness. Think about that for a moment. Think about your own life in that, as I I think about my own life here, and there's no way I could do that. Instead, it just places a despair on me of what's coming at the end. But Christ has intervened. This false gospel says to find your true self. That this is what God wants. That he just wants you to be happy in who you are. And he'll be happy as being an add-on. That is not the true gospel. It's an unloving gospel. Instead, the true gospel calls you to die to self and find the one true God who offers life. It tells you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Christ. We see it in Matthew 16, verse 24, Luke 9, verse 23, and Mark 8, verse 34. And that seems unloving at first, because it makes us ask, you're telling me the true gospel wants me to die? To lose my own life? Yes, it does. So that you may gain true eternal life in Jesus Christ, who is life itself. Matthew 10 verse 39 tells us that if we lose our life, if we abandon self for Jesus, then we will find true and eternal life in Him. The true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, takes the burden of living good enough, of doing enough good works, it takes that burden and places it on the eternal, loving, righteous shoulders of Christ. I really like how The Other Guys podcast, and yes, that's their name, uh, rephrase this statement. They say, bad people become the righteousness of Christ when they die to self. And so contrary to this false gospel, I wanna end with this. You want eternal, true life and joy? Don't seek yourself. Abandon yourself and seek Christ with all your heart. Turn and believe the true gospel and find true, eternal life. And so, it's so important to Julian and I that each time we do this podcast, each time we produce another episode, it is all centered upon the gospel, the true gospel, the finished saving work of Christ. And that's what i leave you with. Jesus Christ's perfect, obedient life, death, and resurrection is the only thing that we can trust in for salvation. He is the only one that gives eternal life. Thank you for tuning in this week. Julian and I are trying to figure out some things with school scheduling, and pretty soon we're going to be releasing something on social media, letting you know our plan for this semester. I'm your host, Colin Hurst, signing off.